Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 775 with Brian Bogert. And so I just knew he had a great work ethic and he has this huge larger than life personality. So I was like, okay, who makes sense to go into business? I know I want to open my own business. Who makes sense? Like what makes sense? And I just remember looking like, who can I trust? Who's loyal and who has a great work ethic? Are you ready for it? Factors. Success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What do you do when you need design work done, but you don't have an artistic bone in your body? You go to 99designs.com. That's what you do. And that's what I did when I needed to update my cover art for Restaurant Unstoppable podcast. And I have to tell you, I could not have been more pleased with the experience. Again, head to www.99designs.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save $20 off your first contest. That's 99designs.com slash unstoppable. Streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. This episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And Seven Shifts is trusted by over 400,000 restaurant professionals because it gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. But before I let you know what we got going on, I got to remind you to support the show. And there's a few ways you can do it. First, uh, check out the sponsors. If you support our sponsors, they'll continue to support the podcast. It's that simple. Also, anytime there's a tool or, or service recommended on the show, I typically reach out to that tool and service and I ask if they have an affiliate program. And if they do, I get signed up. So if there's a tool or service you're interested in leveraging in your business, I'll let me know you're interested in that tool. I'll make the introduction at the very least. Make sure you're using our links. Sometimes they are affiliate links. Uh, please share this podcast. If you're finding value in these interviews, let a friend know. And uh, what I like to do when I find a show that I, I'm listening to I, and I like it, I, I screenshot the audio player like right in on the phone and then I just share it to my Instagram story or to my, my Instagram page uh, and tag me when you do that so I can say thank you personally. Uh, it, it goes so long when you, when you when you share the show uh, subscribe if you haven't already subscribed and then join the network that's really where I'm putting most of my energy these days I want to connect with my most loyal listeners and I want to help my most loyal listeners connect with my 
network of restaurateurs and tools and services and experts that are being recommended on the show. And there's just a community of badass restaurateurs over there who are trying to be the best version of themselves. And I'm telling you, it's lonely at the top, but it doesn't have to be. Come hang out with a bunch of people going through the same thing you're going through. And uh, today we're talking to Brian Bogert. And I really love today's conversation or this this recording uh when i was out in oklahoma city brian uh is from oklahoma he went to school in texas where he discovered a brand called the texadelphia uh and uh he just fell in love as a college student he would go there all the time and he and he kind of always had this inkling this inkling to own his own texadelphia uh and he worked up the college the 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 courage post-college uh, while working in the corporate world to approach the franchisers of this this brand, and he just went for it. Um, and we share the story today. Um, and he has since grown this Texadelphia to the Greater Social Order Dining Collective, which includes uh, Fuzzy Taco Shop. They actually no longer have any Texadelphias. Uh, but I mean, it's part of their legacy, so we know it's worth bringing to the surface. Uh, Seven forty-seven and the Jones Assembly, and what I really loved about today's conversation uh, is that they are—they have this this restaurant group, the Social Order Dining Group is or collective is all over the place when it comes to the type of operations, from fast casual to quick service to franchises to ultra like fancy. I don't know. It's not like a fine dining restaurant, but the Jones assembly is just an incredible restaurant, uh, with a focus on entertainment and they have the, uh, seven, four, seven, uh, college focus bar. They're just all over the spectrum and they're doing pretty great with all their concepts. So tons of lessons came from today's conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I know you guys are too. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Brian Bogert. Are you feeling unstoppable, my man? Let's see. It's uh, <laughs> 2021 now. Um, after uh, 14 days in quarantine, I've, I've got the antibodies now, so I'm as unstoppable as I've yeah, been in a man. long time. We finally made it happen. We had this actually scheduled on Monday of this week. We figured we'd, we'd play it safe and let it ride out as long as possible. Yes. And, I'm not afraid, man. I'm not afraid. <laughs> We're going to get through this. And yes. thank you for communicating and, and making this happen for me. Really Absolutely. Thanks it. for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So I cannot wait to get into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? So I was a coach for 10 years, so I have every cheesy quote there could possibly be. But in terms of just a mantra and kind of how I live my life, I think my favorite quote is the balance between contentment and stress is life's biggest riddle. Ooh, the balance between contentment and stress is life's biggest riddle. Contentment. Okay. Dive into that. How does that resonate? <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. It's kind of like if you're, you know, sitting back and resting on your laurels, sort of accepting complacency that's never good. But if you're driving yourself to like a level of burnout to where those creative juices can't get going, that's not good either. So, uh, you know, I try and live my life in that sweet spot somewhere in between contentment and, you know, overwork and stress. And that's where I feel like you, you can thrive. Yeah, man. And that, that theme of bounce like comes up time and time again. And it's something that like, it's one of the things I had to struggle with 
interviewing so many people, like you'd hear one piece of advice, then you'd hear some other piece of advice that was completely contradictory of this advice. And people are coming to me like, what's the best answer? I'm like, I don't know. I think it's about balance, man. It's about what is best for you. What makes sense for you? What are you going for? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What, what, what's your end game? You know, like it all depends. And it's that it's a matter of that finding that balance. And that when I'm hearing from you, it's kind of like that work life balance, you know, absolutely. Um, is that is that when you when you think of that is it, is it the work life balance that's really what you're getting at? I think so. I think it's making sure you stay charged. You know, recharging your batteries when you need to. Um, when I feel like a mental block or a work block, I know I just need to reset. Yeah. Maybe take a little bit of a break. And you know, like I said, it's it's life's biggest riddle just maintaining that balance and that sweet spot to where you can be the most productive and the most creative. Um, and, and you know, do your craft the best you can. Yeah, man. So you have kind of a unique story into this industry. You were you working in restaurants before you opened your first concept, or you, you guys took an existing concept, right? Which is an, another cool angle of getting into the industry. But sure, how, what, what what set you up for success to be in the restaurant industry? The first, my first job ever when I was fifteen was in a, in a restaurant. Okay. Um, it was the terrace room, which was kind of like the pool grill at a country club, the local country club here in Oklahoma city. And that was kind of my first taste of the restaurant business. And it was like that very first transaction. And when I say transaction, not like the payment part of it, but, but the helping a guest to the engagement, something about that connection and then the fulfillment of that order, taking that order, fulfilling that order. I was kind of hooked and at that, like when I was 15, I started telling people I was going to have my own restaurant. What was it about the industry that got you hooked? Uh, I think there's just this level of like excitement, energy. Um, you know, I've told friends in the past, I, I was a competitive uh, tennis player yep. all growing up. And having that energy... Two-time and- state champion. <laughs> I'll, I'll brag yeah. for it. <laughs> and... Um, Working in the restaurant business, that energy, that excitement is the closest thing I can relate to playing competitive sports. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. I, I understand that. Um, so you knew at this point you wanted to own your own place, but at this time, I'm assuming it was just kind of like a dream, right? Like a fantasy? Yes. Or were you like, okay, like how can we make this happen? I feel like I was so confident that one day I was going to open up my own restaurant. I just don't think I knew exactly how to get there. So I kind of just followed, you know, the the usual route of, of going to college, going to school. And then I just kind of fell into a corporate job, which I loved and learned a lot from. But that is kind of what made me realize, okay, this is what I don't want to do. And what did I love doing? And that ultimately gave me the confidence to jump into opening my own my own restaurant. Okay. So was this country club the only restaurant you had worked in before going to college in the corporate? It was, okay. yeah. Did you work there for the three years before going to college? I think I worked there a total of seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah, even like through in college. the summers through college. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to think that we are a compilation of all the mentors that influence us, people that influence us. Are, is there anybody that comes to your mind, uh, a restaurant person that really helped mold the hospitalitarian you are today. I don't think that's a real word, by the way, but I'm going <laughs> to make sure good. I get it into the, the <laughs> uh, Webster dictionary before the end of my time with this podcast. 
in terms of restaurant specific, um, I feel like there wasn't necessarily a specific example of somebody that I saw them and I wanted to do that necessarily. Um, both of my grandpas were entrepreneurial and they owned their own businesses young. So I think that like entrepreneurial spirit, like they were mentors to me Mm. and just how they took care of their employees. Mm -hmm. And can you give me an example of a story of how? Sure. I mean, I just remember luckily as a kid, I got to go to both of their offices quite frequently and I always got to go to like their holiday dinners or holiday parties or I remember they'd have these summer outings at this place called Frontier City, which is an amusement park. And everybody I think that's right off the highway. Over here. <laughs> yeah, I, saw, I was like, what yeah. is that place? <laughs> and and their entire families were there and, and we'd like take over this park. And I just remember thinking, like, this is the coolest thing. It's like a family. And so I feel like their entrepreneurial spirit and how they took care of their uh team members was really important. And then uh, on another level, my dad's been a coach, high school football coach, I think for 40 years, close to 40 years. And same thing is something just about how he takes care of his athletes and like bringing them food for film meetings and, you know, taking them out to dinner. There's just something about how all of them took care of you know, their team, like it was their family. And I think that's, that's the thing that like, I remember most about growing up in, in the working world. And what I try to put into my restaurant group is, is making sure it is like a family and taking care of each other. I love that. What were your grandparents doing? So my grandfather, uh, both of them, well, one has been in the oil business okay. for, uh, the majority of his life still does it. Uh, the other, um, he opened his first service station at 22 and just kind of did all sorts of things, sales, marketing, um, dabbled in restaurants. So a little bit of everything. Awesome. I love yeah. that. Any other lessons from your, your, your grandfathers before moving forward as far as how to be, uh, how to, how to look at entrepreneurism, anything like that? Let's see. I don't need to put you on the spot. The answer could be no, too. Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm there's, sure there's tons of like under like the radar things that they like. You ton, how like how, where do you start? Right? Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like just observing them. I don't know that I was in an age to ask them like business minded questions, but I do remember like a turning point in my career, kind of when I felt lost. My dad telling me okay, what do your books look like? How are you keeping track of your books? And at that point... Was and that with the social order? That was my first restaurant. Okay. Yeah, first restaurant in 2003. And I was kind of trying to do everything. My business partner, Manny, and I were working the cash register, working the grill. I was trying to do the books and keep up. And, and my dad, you know, I was just kind of hitting this wall. And my dad was like, do you understand your books? Do you understand if you're making money or not making money? And I'm like, well, I understand if I have enough money in the account to write this check or not, but I don't understand my books. And I just remember he was like, if you don't get somebody that can take good care of your books and understand your financials, you're never going to understand your business. And that was like kind of a light bulb moment in the restaurant industry for me. And at, at that point I found a group and they've been with us for 18 years now. I'm making a note here because I want to come back to that. Sure. Um, books. So, all right. Um, so, 
you ended up going to school um, in Dallas, right? University uh, Methodist yep. University of Dallas in Dallas, um, or sorry, Southern, Southern Methodist. Methodist University in Dallas. What did you go to school for? I went to uh, my majors were finance and marketing. Okay, yep. and when you took these majors in the back of your mind, were you like, what would serve me best as a restaurateur, or had you not really gotten to that point yet? I think it was kind of a okay. I knew I wanted to do something business wise, and I knew that. I wanted to someday open my own business. So it's like, okay, what what was kind of the default major? And then I had this creative side that I really wanted to tap into. So I was like, okay, let's get the analytical side, finance, and then let's get the creative side with marketing. Both of those help in business. So um, just kind of default double majored in, in finance and marketing. Yeah, I think those are two solid majors. I think finance and marketing is probably tends to be the biggest Achilles heels for most restaurateurs. Uh, it's that extra stuff that when you're opening a restaurant, you just don't think you're ever going to have to really pay attention to. You're more focused on cooking the food mm-hmm. or serving, but you forget there's just so many other elements. It's the e-myth, right? The, oh, so you want to open your business. Like, <laughs> do you know anything about financing or marketing? Probably not. Our systems and processes. I kind of have to take a little jab at you because I think it's kind of funny that you majored in financing and struggled with your books. <laughs> I know, I know. Seriously. Uh, which is more, I think it's just more of a statement to our <laughs> educational system than it is to you, honestly. Uh, how fun, how ironic is that? Um, so what were your biggest lessons in college? So, gosh, I mean, being away from home for the first time for that long was a, a good lesson. And I think just being in a bigger city and seeing all the things that Dallas had to offer, um, you know, going out on my own for the first time, going out to eat, traveling, you know, exploring a new city, all of those things just kind of got my creative juices flowing. And I even further, when I had my first job outside of college, I got to travel all the time. And I feel like those life experiences and getting to travel internationally to larger cities, seeing things that we didn't necessarily have here in Oklahoma City, that's kind of what was the launch pad to me doing what I'm doing now. I love that. Um, and isn't, isn't the fuzzy taco franchise based in Northern B- Texas? Fort Worth. Yes. Yeah, Started yeah. in Fort Worth. Yeah. So is that, was that your first like impression of the, of the brand, the franchise? So oddly enough, I never had been to a fuzzies while I was in Texas. Okay. So the first, uh, concept are like, our favorite restaurant in college was Texadelphia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it was right by SMU. We'd go there all the time. We'd have, you know, social events there. It was just like the place to go when you finally crawled out of bed on the weekends and go eat. And um, so that was kind of the first, like, I, I guess, sort of dive into the restaurant. Is it, it was my favorite restaurant. My friends and I liked it. Um, so that was that was the first thing we opened. Um, Fuzzies kind of came as a result of us being Texadelphia franchisees. Okay. Reflecting back at uh, Texadelphia, what was it about that franchise that made you love it so much? There's something about just how approachable and comfortable it was. And at that point, fast casual really wasn't a widespread service model. Mm-hmm. In What's the, the industri- year? Kind of, not, this to, not was, to date you. <laughs> no, you can date me. This was late 90s. Okay, gotcha. So, and it was pretty much everything was either fast food or sit down dining. Yeah, full service. Yeah, casual. full service. Yeah. So the idea of, you know, quick casual, fast casual really 
wasn't widespread yet. Just starting to develop. Yeah, just starting to develop. So um, that idea of having a little bit nicer experience than, you know, driving through a McDonald's uh, to still being able to get in and out quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And at an affordable price point for a college student. Yes. Kind of played into it. Uh, Interesting. So um, what about professors or anything along those lines, mentors in college that influence you? In college, we had... um, I had so many great professors. I had a great marketing professor that I loved. Um, also, in our fraternity, uh, our chapter advisor, I was I was president of our fraternity, uh, Bo Seegers. He worked for International Paper, and he was just a great mentor in terms of how to lead and how to lead effectively. And he just had this great way of giving me feedback, like, okay, what you said resonated or it didn't resonate, and here's why. Um, and he was just a great support system. Uh, he was probably 10, 12 years older than me at that point, but it was like having somebody to bounce something off of that, that knew a little, little bit more than I did at that point. Nice. Um, so basically like you learned about communication skills, how to give constructive criticism. Yeah. It sounds like he would, he would build you up and then maybe take you down a little, but it wasn't like he knew how to give the critique. Absolutely. So yeah. What about that? Do you think was special that you can share with us now? I think, I don't know. I think he just helped me become a leader who engaged, um, just engaged the chapter, you know, like somebody that was approachable that they could trust. What made him approachable? He was just always kind of there and around. And like when it mattered, he was there. And like just looking back, I noticed that he was, he was available and he was there and he was present. Gave an F. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, it's that simple. Like people know when you care and it, it, it communicates, it translates. Definitely. Um, absolutely. So, um, you were in school with your, one of your best friends, right? Yes. And your business partner. Yes. So what was it like? I mean, you really go b- way back with your business partner. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Manny LeClaire, who is still uh, one of my business partners today, we were at SMU together. We were both kind of after college working in jobs, like big corporate jobs. Uh, he worked for the Richards Group, a big marketing company in Dallas. I worked for Accenture, which was a, a big management consulting firm. And um, you know, we were both kind of in the rat race there, just kind of working our tails off. Uh, I was working very unusually long hours, f- traveling, flying out first thing every Monday morning and not getting back to like late Thursday night or Friday. So I really didn't even, I was a nomad. I really didn't even have a place that I'd call home other than a hotel and a hotel lobby. Um, but we both just kind of got to our, a point where we were like, Hey, we want to do our own thing. And what do we know? And what do we love? And, and he had worked at restaurants all through college and it's just kind of a natural fit. Nice. So what was Manny's focus? So he was a advertising marketing major. Um, and you know, he worked at this little restaurant right by SMU called Roly Poly that you could walk through what you could walk to from SMU. Um, and so I just knew he had a great work ethic and he has this huge larger than life personality. And so I was like, okay, who makes sense to go into business? I know I want to open my own business. Who makes sense? Like what makes sense? And I just remember looking like, who can I trust? Who's loyal and who has a great work ethic? What made you think you needed a business partner at this point in your life? I think I was probably just scared to branch out solely on my own. It was a big enough jump. Yeah. 
um, I was like very financially stable, growing the corporate ladder at Accenture, working at Fortune 500 companies and starting to make a name for myself in that organization. And I kind of panicked to the point of, if I don't do this now, five years from now, I'm going to wake up and never like, this is going to be my career for life. And this isn't what I wanted. That wasn't what I wanted my career to be. So um, it was just kind of that point where it's like, okay, you know, got to jump in and try this. Yeah. And how old were you when you started? How long were you into your career before you started having these thoughts? Three years. Uh, so like 25, 24 years old. Yeah. So I think that I, I was at Accenture for three years. So I think probably by my 22, 23, I was exploring it. And I, re- yeah. I remember like thinking specifically and I knew specifically Texadelphia is what I wanted to open and bring to Oklahoma. And I knew I wanted to bring it here. And I remember like growing up the courage, like, okay, I'm going to call them. I'm going to make the call. And I remember being so nervous to call the franchisor of, of Texadelphia, call the owner and just tell them what I wanted to do. Like shaking on the phone when yeah. I made that first call. So I'm curious when, when reflecting back at this time, um, you, you said you, you didn't want to do it on your own, right? You knew that, like you weren't quite ready to, to, to really go out on your own. You, but what about, were you mindful enough or self-aware enough to know that maybe you needed somebody to round you off? Maybe you, you weren't strong where mighty, Manny might have been strong? Uh, absolutely. I feel like I am the act and then ask questions later or I'm more of a, what's React. the term? Like the... Uh, Ready, fire, aim? The ask for forgiveness <laughs> ra- ra- rather oh, yeah. than permission guy. And Manny is that ask for a lot of permission before. <laughs> so I think we definitely... Um, yeah, definitely balance each other out. Nice. Good to know. Um, what was it that made you think, I want to start with a franchise? Um, did you ever have, at this point in your mind, did you think you might ever want to do your own unique concept? Or was that not even on the radar yet? Or did you only want to be a franchise operator? I I felt like it was going to be a great way to learn since I've never opened um, my own restaurant. I, I thought it'd be a great way to learn and learn the system and be able to train in an existing restaurant. It's so true. And, and, and it's, I mean, there's tons of ways, there's tons of points of entry into this industry. Um I think that's probably if you have not a lot of experience, but you know you want to own and you want to learn fast and you want to learn how to do it right, the best way is to get involved with some type of early franchise because there tends to be a lot of opportunity if you can really be selective and don't go think of it as you selling yourself to them. Like you want to find somebody who wants you, right? Like you want to, you know, like really figure out like, who's the best to join um, and then just learn as much as possible, ride that wave early on, make a bunch of money. Right. <laughs> and then figure out like, okay, now that I know how to the operations of a business work, I can go out and plug those systems into my own concept. Was that going around in the back of your mind? Yeah, absolutely. Like just kind of soaking as much in as possible. And it was such a young, like infant, franchise that I, we also knew that we had a little bit of flexibility. Like it wasn't going to be so stringent that we couldn't use our own creativity and come up with some of our own ideas too. So that was really attractive. But I mean, Texadelphia was, it was our crash course. Like it was our, here's how to 
you know, run, operate, open a restaurant 101. And we made every single mistake you could possibly make. It, it was like, that was the launch pad for what the social order is today. Every single like thing that we do and don't do now started in that restaurant okay. in 2003. Now's a great time <laughs> to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to really start unpackaging some of these lessons learned. I don't know about you all, but when it comes to artistic ability, I am a hopeless. The best I can do is a, a couple of stick figures and that's on a good day. So if you're anything like me and you need design work done, I'm telling you, 99designs.com is your solution. And we just recently launched our contest with 99designs for a new logo, an updated logo. Man, I'm telling you, the experience was seamless. And I was so impressed with how attentive the designers were and how they just wanted to please us. And it was like overnight, we had countless submissions on what we asked for. And I'm telling you, the experience is fun. It's a fun experience. I highly recommend 99designs, whether you're trying to improve your online presence or maybe you're launching a ghost kitchen and you need a brand fast. Now, go with 99designs. Head to 99designs.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you'll save $20 off your first contest. That's 99designs.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and I can't wait to dive into some of these lessons you learned the hard way, the mistakes <laughs> you made, but I think you probably have some nuggets you can drop on us, some gold, uh, about how to, the best way to approach a franchise war and to get their blessing to you know become a franchisee. So what did you learn about that uh, that process? You said you were terrified. Terrified. Yeah, to, to, to uh, approach these people. Like, Take us through that. <laughs> I can remember driving like on my lunch break, when I was working at Accenture and this is so embarrassing, but I remember listening to the Dave Matthews song, where are you going? And that was like the inspirational, okay, you're going to call, you're going to call Do you know the jingle. <laughs> Let's do it. Could I sing it now? No, no, no. Um, But it's just like hilarious looking back that that was the song that inspired. What are the lyrics? I kind of the where are you going? (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it it was kind of like this pivotal moment. I knew I was ready to leave Accenture, but I didn't know exactly how to get out. And so I remember just like building up the courage to make the call. And the first call I made was actually to the Dallas franchisee, which was the store that we kind of went through all through college. They had three or four locations. So I approached the franchisee first and was like, hey, how'd you get started? What did you do? How'd you open these? How did you approach? Um, What does it look like being a franchisee? And so I felt like that gave me confidence to actually call the owner um, and, you know, just say, hey, I've, I've talked to this Dallas franchisee. I, I think we've got what it takes to become franchisees. Here's the location we want to do. And so that first uh, call to him was a little bit easier because I'd sort of interviewed a couple of the franchisees first. Which I think is a great approach. I mean, that shows that you're serious. You know, that, that shows them that you're doing the legwork, that you, you're not just put, kicking the tires. You know, you're serious. And I think it also helps that it was your favorite place to eat. Yeah. You know, like you're a fan. You're, you've already kind of embodied the culture. You're an extension of the family already, you know? Um, what did you learn to, speaking to that franchisee, the person that, that owned those couple units in the, the Dallas area? You know, basically he was like, 
a huge marketing person. That was his focus. And he did this great job kind of building this cult following. He had gone to UT and Texadelphia, it was on the drag right across from University of Texas. And it was a huge cult following. He did a great job bringing that to, to Dallas. Um, he just was a quirky guy that did the weirdest marketing stuff. And he was just funny. And it made this kind of unusual Tex-Mex meets Philly cheesesteak burger sandwich shop seemed like the coolest thing ever to 20s and 30 year olds to young <laughs> professionals and um so he really just kind of gave us ideas on marketing and then um what about the advice he gave you about approaching the franchise or like what when you were asking him like should we like when you said hey i want to open my own uh fuzzy taco was he like like what do you say like or, or, you know like what was the the advice he gave you to approach the franchise or basically like made it seem like not the biggest deal ever. Like I was building it up to be this like life changing monumental call, which it did end yeah. up being, but he was so laid back in it to, to where he's like, Oh, just call him. What's, you know, what do you have to lose? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times it, it, fear of approaching something or going after, after a goal. Um, when you look at it, at, at what do you have to lose? Uh, you know, that's a good way to just go for it. Yeah. I mean, ain't nothing to it. But to it. Yeah, that's what I like to say. Um, did he give you any advice about well, the questions to ask, the things that I like to hear, things like that? Um, no, just go basically, for it. Basically, <laughs> yeah, go for it. And, and basically, I think he said, make sure you let him know you know your market, you know your audience, and that you have some restaurant experience. I mean, at looking back at it at 22 and 23 approaching somebody to become a franchise i mean there's not a lot of systems that would allow that to happen now with the lack of experience we had so looking back on it it seems kind of crazy that we did that but we we kind of built that confidence and we're like we can do this we're the ones to bring it to the first location out of state um here's our restaurant experience we have energy we'll work anybody under the table and we just kind of sold them on it. Yeah. Um, I think it helps to be a fan too. So like really yeah. Oh, yeah. like, you know, like you're like, like I said earlier, you're already a part of the team, an extension of the team, an extension of the family. Um, you mentioned this franchisee that was kind of mentoring you. Was he somebody who was only kind of offering you advice before you, you know, pull the trigger or was he kind of a, in your back pocket throughout the journey of becoming a franchisee? He was always available. We got to train in some of his stores. Um, so, I I feel like um, he kind of ushered us into the franchiser, Joel, who created this concept. He was originally from Philly and brought it to Austin. Makes sense. So, so it kind of, yeah, Texadelphia. So he's saying fuzzy taco. I can't forget it. I apologize. (laughs) No, you're fine. So, so he kind of handed us off to Joel and, and we ended up learning a ton from him. I remember us thinking like, Oh gosh, we have this crotchety guy that has all these rules and, you know, he'd teach us to take a spatula and, you know, after we'd prep guacamole or prep mustard blend, which is kind of the famous, like, he'd be like, nope, that container isn't done. You know, you can get two more portions out of that and penny profits. Yeah. There's all these little nuggets that he taught us that's like, oh yeah, well, we still use that. Like, I'll still go to a dish pit and I'll see somebody taking something to the dish pit that is not completely portioned out or yeah. prepped, you know, and, and I'll still think that penny profits. Those rubber spatulas. <laughs> exactly. <full>. They're great. <laughs> um, so really kind of paint the picture of 
the early days, um, the biggest lessons you learned, you talk about the, every little, like every little drop of product counts at all compounds it all matters. What were some of the other really big lessons you learned during those days of shadowing and, and, and being in this, this other, what was his name? The other franchisee, uh, uh Tom Landis Tom. is a Dallas franchisee. Yeah. So what else did he teach you to set you up for success? Um, at that point, I feel like we really just felt like we needed to know how to do the cooking and the recipes. So we just made everything time and time again. We made sure we knew the recipes. Um, we knew how to work the line. I think what was difficult was we didn't really learn all the business side of it. So we were so focused on the food part that all of that we kind of assumed would come later or we knew enough from our own <laughs> limited life experience at that point. So um, I think learning from them was mostly about operating the kitchen and executing the recipes. I love that. Um, so you pull the trigger, you open your first location, Oklahoma, right? Yes. Um, take us through that. Like what, what was it like? This is where I really want you to be like reflecting back on that time, knowing what you know now, the lessons you learned, the mistakes you made, like what were the big ones that stand out? Oh my gosh. I mean, we were the most naive young 20 year olds that thought we were going to change the world by opening our restaurant on 2003, 2003, years old. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we just thought, okay, well, we can handle this. Like, we can do everything on our own. I mean, there are times I'd be working the catch register, Manny be working the grill or vice versa. You know, we thought we'd be there open to close. We were for a long time. We were there open to close. And we tried to do everything. We were the managers. We were the hourly workers. You know, we just felt like that was the only thing that we... Only way we can make it succeed as if we were always there. Um, and it's a good thing because we learned a lot. We learned about the successes and failures. But I think the most important lesson was we learned we couldn't do anything. We learned there were just certain things that we had to outsource at the end of the day. There were things that we had to let go, small things, delegation. And we realized we have to have a manager. Yeah. What were the things that were slipping out of your grasp? Your grasp the things that you... you, you you didn't have the bandwidth for. You know, I was trying to do basically all of the accounts receivable, accounts payable, keeping up with QuickBooks. Um, and I felt like that was one of my strong suits, but it was like... that's background. Yeah, and, yeah. And, but it was just kind of one of the things that, you know, it's 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, you're locking up the doors and... There's no That's just, the just something, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that. put that off till tomorrow and yeah. then tomorrow becomes next week and the next week comes, you know, and, it, and it's like, then you find yourself in a situation of not even knowing your profitability. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this kind of brings us back to where we were when I made the note to come back to the books. Um, what was, was, was finding an account one of the first things you guys did to, to get control, to to not to, to know what your profitability was to really understand the numbers. We did. We um so we found a group uh there there was two local restaurateurs, Rusty Leffler, uh and his group, they had used this company called Restaurant Hospitality Associates, RHA. Okay. And and so I reached out to them and I just said, "Hey, do you have somebody that does your books and they put me in contact and I remember I called Carolyn Farmer who owns this uh, restaurant bookkeeping company and they specialize essentially, I think their only clients are restaurants 
maybe a few hotels, but hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. And um, she said, Brian, you're within two weeks, you're never going to know how you live without me. And here we are in 2021, and uh, Carolyn's team does the books for all every single restaurant in our group. Yeah, so um, really kind of paint that picture of the before and after, like where you were, what your your perception of the business was to where she took you after, say, like six months of really like tracking and documenting the numbers. So where I started was a big pile of bills and uh, and kind of unorganized books. And where we ended up was uh, Carolyn provides these daily cash sheets that, that aren't just like, okay, log into your bank account and or look at your bank statement and here's what's in the bank. It provides a daily snapshot into right now, here's how much money you have based on sales coming in, checks going out, yeah. and it provides an actual snapshot at that moment of time of what your cash position is. So that allowed us to really have the tools to understand what we could and couldn't do. Um, and just know where every penny is at all yeah, times. Yeah, absolutely. If, and I mean, this is a little plug right now. I use profit first money management system um, because I don't really have the bandwidth or the, the additional income to afford an accountant. I, my business isn't, isn't really that complex enough yet. It's starting to get there actually, but I'm on the edge, but just knowing like knowing exactly where all of your money is. Um, I think if you're not quite ready for an accountant, the profit first money management system is huge because it just uses, um, it's the envelope system. You get money in, you fill up the envelopes that you put the money aside of what you need, you know, to cover your liabilities, then what's ever left over, you know, and you count yourself as one of those liabilities and your profit as one of those liabilities. So, you know, you're putting away 10% of profit. You know, that you're, you're cutting whatever you need to cover your life liabilities so you can pay your mortgage at the end of the month. You know, everything that you need, it goes away. Um, and it's knowing exactly where all of your money is cannot be stressed enough. Absolutely. Uh, for sure. But my plug's over. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's um, great. <laughs> so um, what, what were some of the other things reflecting back at that time that were just game changers? Actually, before you get into that, I, I want to address that. I think you did the right thing by just being you and Manny um, at first. I think every owner needs to like go through it all. To understand how every aspect of their business works, you need to do it yourself first and then slowly through doing it, knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, knowing what your lanes are, right? And then start focusing on your strengths and delegating or hiring for your weaknesses or the things you just don't have the bandwidth for. Was that kind of going through the back of your mind as you're like, okay, what do do I really just not want to do? Accounts payable, accounts, you know, AP, um, AR. Yeah, I think think we finally had to start thinking, okay, what can we delegate? What can, when can we not be here? Because yeah. it, it wasn't realistic that our entire life we were going to be there every yeah. day. Otherwise, we never would have opened any yeah. other restaurants. Um, but I think, you know, I think that's what we, we had to start looking at. It's like, where, what can we cut? What, what can we outsource? What can we delegate? What tasks can be done by an hourly employee? What can we do to hire a manager? Like, and, and really, once we understood our books, we understood what we could afford. We yep. were able That's to hire a manager. So important to start yeah. with, Cause you need to know what your excess cash flow is. So you know what you can afford. So you're not overextending yourself. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the partnership. Um, sure. we already identified that many complimented you. Well, um, I'm going to pause it real quick because my computer went to sleep. Um, <clears throat> that many identified you well, but really like in the restaurant, um, 
how did you guys start dividing? I, I, I don't think you can do it without a partner and be the best. I, I think you're going to burn out. You need somebody to lean on. You need somebody to just that understands what you're going through because you need a day off every once in a while. It's like somebody might get sick. You might have to go to a wedding or like what you need to be able to, to have someone to lean on. Definitely. Would you agree with that? Or, yeah, I absolutely agree with it. I, and I think, you know, I never want to go back to those times, but I think it was, I would never trade it for the world because we learned so much in those first year and a half, two years. We learned everything we know now that makes us successful restaurateurs now. Um, but, you know, looking back at it, we were able to, you know, there were times where we would break down on the walk-in and be like, okay, it's time for you to go home, go take a rest, yeah. you know? And, and but if you don't have a partner, yeah, you have nobody to relieve you. Like, Absolutely. You gotta suck it up. And like, that's going to bring everyone down. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's so important. Absolutely. Um, what were some of the things? So back to this idea of delegating, the first thing you did is you delegated the books so you knew what your cash flow was, so you knew what you could afford to start outsourcing and, and delegating. What were the second, third, and fourth things you started to like offload? So shortly after that, we hired um, Manny's brother had, had uh, just gotten through with college, and so we hired him to be the GM. So he came in which really just allowed us to have more time away from the store more than anything. Um, we still like had our outright responsibilities, but it started to get me to think about opening other restaurants or how I would do it differently the next go round. So I think that was, that was kind of the next step was getting it in place, getting things running well so that we can move on to the next project. Okay. And what were some of the things that you were contemplating to do differently or how you would do it differently? Does anything, I mean, I know it was over 10 years ago, but does anything come back to mind as to what you would have done differently? I think that basically moving forward, we made sure we had key personnel in place from day one um, just because we realized, okay, if we're going to have multiple restaurants and build a restaurant group, we can't be the only ones running each individual store. So we have to have key personnel, great leadership, people that we trust in place from the beginning at each of those. So from that point on, Texadelphia was the the first and last restaurant that Manny and I <laughs> became the sole uh, manager. So we, we had basically... Um, we just knew we wouldn't open a new concept until we knew we had somebody ready uh, yes, basically dude, to run yes, that next one. I love that. And I always say two things determine your growth. Number one, cash flow. You check that box. Number two, people. Don't open the second location and then, then try to find your people. <laughs> Grow your people in the first location. Say, hey, you don't need me to be here. Your your growth is stunted by staying here. Why don't I promote you? Why don't you open your own store? You know, and like you manage that store. Is that? I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you said it better than I did. Beautiful. (laughs) So, what what does that look like? Getting people to that point. You know, it's it's kind of fun because you get to a point where you see like natural leadership in your team members, and you think, oh, that person could run our next location, and it's kind of to the point that we got. I'd say six, seven years ago, we got to this point that we had more people developed than we had concepts. 
So we're like, oh, we get we got to start rolling out more concepts because yeah. we've got people ready to put in place. And that's the cue. That's when you know. Yeah. It's like when you do you own, and I stand by this. The only time you expand is when you run out of opportunity and you know you're going to lose good people, money makers. You know you're going to yeah. lose them. They're going to go off the to make somebody else money or to make money for themselves, right? Like yeah. give them opportunity. Um, I love that. Um, when you see, oh man, this person has some leadership characteristics. What's this, what's going through your mind? What's your approach to to letting them know that they have it um, and to really starting to like groom them to get to where they need to be? I think the thing that I see the most is if somebody's a self-starter, like, you know, you can always give somebody a to-do list, but somebody that walks into a room and develops their own to-do list and checks off their own to-do list is the best kind of leader because yes, yeah. the, the self-starter is just, it's an intangible that, that you either have it or you don't. <laughs> what else are you looking for? Just a good person. Um, you know, if I'm talking to a potential, uh, new team member or manager or leadership within our group, you know, can they carry a conversation? Do they seem like a good person? And it's, I feel like it's more an intangible. Like when I talk, when I interview somebody, I don't have specific questions. Yeah. It's a feeling. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's a feeling. So I think just, just a good person, somebody yeah. that it feels like hospitality is in their DNA. So you know they're, they're going to be a manager or running their own restaurant someday. How do you break the news to them that that's your plan for them? Like, What is the approach? It, it's, it's interesting because we've been able to hold on to a lot of people that probably never planned for the hospitality and restaurant industry to be their career. But um, right about the time that uh, we were starting to expand, we opened our own concept, 747 in Norman, and then we you know, decided we were going to become Fuzzies franchisees, um, was wa- right about the time um, there were a ton of energy management and a ton of oil-based graduates in Oklahoma City, especially that worked for us, and it was right about the time of the oil bust. And so we were able to hold on to a lot of people because they couldn't get jobs. And then we offered them opportunities that they weren't able to get when they graduated. And then we basically vested them into our system that we decided, you know what, these are great, uh, you know, great hard workers, people that maybe not necessarily thought they'd be in the restaurant business forever, but they're career minded. So we came up with a program just to vest them into our system, a profit sharing system. And a lot of those people that worked for us from, I mean, some of the key leaders in our group have worked for us since 2003, 2005. Um, when, when did seven, Four seven come into play. Two thousand five. So okay, it's only two years. Two after, years after. Two yeah. years after. Okay. Yeah. How many Texadelphia locations did you open? We opened the first location in Norman, and then we opened one in downtown Oklahoma City. With the, before the Texas, the, before the seven four seven. Seven forty seven came second. So that was the that was the second business, and, and I kind of branched off and opened that with one of our Texadelphia managers. Okay. Um. Got you. So so it was. Texadelphia, 2003, 747, 2005. And when did your second Texadelphia? I don't think we opened our second Texadelphia until 2009. Okay. And was there any other concept between those two? So at this point, you only had three businesses. Yeah. At that point, um, 747 really was a monster. It took up a lot of our time and energy. 
Um, it was kind of the campus corner restaurant and bar and like the late night spot for the University of Oklahoma. So what did your business paint the picture of where you got your business before 2005 where you said we're busting at the seams with talent. We need to open something else. We need to create opportunity. I feel like that point in Norman, um, Norman was really starting to grow. More people were coming to the University of Oklahoma from other states. It used to be really just like a continuation of high school for people that live in Oklahoma. But a lot of Texas, uh, Colorado, people from all over started coming to the University of Oklahoma. They really started recruiting out of state. And there was just this demand for concepts that you know, we're a little different than what, you know, Norman had previously. Mm -hmm. And, um, at that point there were really only dive bars on campus corner. And we were like, you know what, we're going to open up a nice, um, a nice bar for a college town and, uh, just something fun for the students. And, and we just saw a need. That's kind of how we've done everything. We see a need for something and then we go for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I was telling you the story of how I started the podcast and it's when you're looking for something <laughs> yeah. and you can't find it, odds are you're not the only one looking for it. Um, so, but back to Texadelphia, um, d- did you establish that like you you had more people than you, more talent than you know what to do with? Is that where you were at? Before? And then how did you select who went on to open the 747? We, uh, well, at that point, a friend of mine who became my business partner in 747 was a shift manager at Texadelphia. He graduated and was like, hey, you know, I'm interested in opening a restaurant, uh, a bar, like we need more places to drink on Campus Corner. And so we just started like bouncing it off each other. Another shift manager, Kristen Shashelsky, got in on the mix and we just kind of started coming up. She was an interior designer. So we started coming up with all these ideas of what would make I a cool this. bar. Yeah. Leverage the talent. You have, <laughs> yeah. man. Like Sometimes we just give, we treat people like cogs in a wheel and we say, do the job, but we never say, what else can you do? You know, what else, what else, what else do you bring to the table? How else can we, you know, shine a, a light on your, the, the, the assets you, you have, right? Like how can we make you shine? Right. Yeah. I love that. Um, you said you made these people your partners, your business partners? Yeah, partners. Equity partners? Partners, equity partners, investors, um, operators. You know, I just, I saw talent in both of them. Like I said, Kristen was this go-getter. She had an eye, like the best eye just for everything. And um, Court was kind of like the ultimate maitre d'. Like nobody made more tips waiting tables than Court did at, at Texadelphia. So it just became this thing like, oh, these are great pieces that would make a great, fun restaurant bar. And they were ready for the next step. They, yeah. were, they weren't going to continue working at Texadelphia any longer. So I was like, okay, let's, let's do it. Let's yeah. go for it. And I was ready. I think I finally caught my breath from... Manny and I opening Texadelphia, so we just went for it. What do you think the best approach in equity sharing is? How to break that up? What's fair? What's what? What is the best model in your opinion? So, it's it's difficult. I mean, um, I think I meant to brief. I always brief my guests before. I'm like, I'm going to ask you weird questions that normally people wouldn't ask you, but that's where the gold is because yeah. this is the stuff people don't share. This is like the kind of personal stuff that is a little bit maybe crossing a line. And I, re- and I no, acknowledge that <laughs> I, I'm, ha- I'm happy to share it. Yeah. And I'm happy to share what has been, um, you know, has worked for us. And yeah. so kind of what we've done is 
uh, you know, in that instance, I just allowed them to become my partners and we took out loans. We found investors together. Um, we put in some of our own so equity. Everyone's putting their own skin in the game. Yeah. Everyone got their own skin for the, for that instance. And that was the first time I really took on like big time investors, like yeah. scary. I don't want to lose these people's money type investors. But now what we do is if we find somebody that we think is great for a concept or our next restaurant, um, we generally make them a GM, which would is kind of an operating partner in waiting. And after that first year, if things have gone well, they become vested and that's when they're eligible for profit sharing. Yeah. So, so the tiers are GM profit sharing equity or... Yeah. Okay. I love that. Um, one thing I'm curious about, what, what system do you have for structuring the profit sharing? How do you, how do you put the profit aside and, and how, like, is it open book? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's open book. Basically, we review um, our preliminary P&L statements each month. We look at our net operating profit. Um, if there's any debt service in there, we take that away. And then we distribute, um, you know, sometimes we hold some back just for cash reserves. So sometimes we'll distribute 80%. But if, if our cash position is looking good, oftentimes those months we'll distribute a hundred percent of that net operating profit minus debt service. Okay. And we, you know, you, you hear it all the time, treat it like you own it. Right. And I believe in that statement. You should look for people who treat it like they own it, but really like no one's, gonna truly treat it like they own it until they do. Absolutely. And if they are treating it like they own it, then they should, they should. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's, and and I think that's the way we bring back the middle class. You know, that's how we create opportunity. That's how we become stronger together. And there's a lot of people that get really like hairs across their ass when they think about sharing equity and dividing things up. What, What advice do you have for those people? I just, you know, if you have the, there's a couple things. If you see somebody that treats it like their own when it's not, yeah, you better find a way to share in your profits with that person because yeah. they deserve it. You're going to lose them if you don't. Yep. At some point, somebody's going to see it. You're going to become a competitor. You already yes. taught them everything. You already yes. gave them your core values. They already know your systems and your processes. That's 50% you wouldn't have had otherwise. Exactly. And that's how you got to look at it. This is you recreating yourself and other people so you can multiply and scale. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. And, and like, it's not... Fifty percent you don't have. It's fifty percent you would never have had access to. It depending. I don't know if you do fifty fifty or what. I'm just using that as an example. Um, you mentioned something else earlier that I thought was really intriguing. You said that sometimes people are on a separate path and they never even considered the restaurant industry as a path. I think it's really important that when we see somebody and recognize them for being good at something, it's our duty to let them know they're good at it because we don't know what we're good at, I think, personally. Sometimes it takes that outside perspective to let somebody know that we're good at it. We might have an idea that, oh, like I, I, I tend to do this better than the other person, but when you reinforce that, when you let them know, they might have never even considered it as a possibility and you might make it a passion for them. And I think we become passionate about what gets reinforced. We all want to be praised. We all want to be seen. We all want to be recognized. I think it's getting seen, being recognized that helps you to find your passion because like it, it feeds the soul. Am I, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, one of my very favorite things to do is if I hear something from a customer or my friend texts me and says, Hey, I was at Fuzzy's in Chisholm Creek and this cashier so-and-so uh, did an awesome job. Like my son has this allergy. They made sure everything was perfect. My favorite thing to do is go in and find that 
employee and tell them like we talk about, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can catch people doing wrong and we like to correct that obviously, but it's awesome to catch somebody doing something good and make sure that they know about it. It's one of my very favorite things to do and just see the surprise of like, Oh, wow, this is the owner telling me I did this good. Yeah, we we need help finding our lane. We do. And and I think that's where ownership, the duty comes in, helping people get in the lanes, putting them in the right seat on the bus, right? Yeah. As Jim Collins would say. So, um, okay, we, we haven't even really moved that much beyond... Uh, Dexadelphia, sorry. And there, so there's one more thing I did, like you made me think of this, but you know, in 2003, 2005, there was a stigma for restaurant workers that it was a part-time gig. It wasn't a career. And I feel like we've worked so hard. We created that industry. Yeah. Too. We've worked We're so hard now yeah. to, to, realize this this is a career this is a lifestyle this is a passion people have and it's a respectable way to gain a wage and and i feel like now it's like you know especially bartenders and chefs like that's almost like in some instances a you know a celebrity like like you said you came in and you saw nathan and you remember nathan i mean Nathan's a star in Oklahoma oh, yeah. City in the bartending sure. scene, and and that's awesome. That's not it, it's Wait it's for not the camera, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a uh, you know it's no longer an industry or a career path to take lightly. Yeah, I love that. Um, thank you for saying that. Um, okay, so two thousand what what do I have here? Two thousand ten. We opened seven. 47, 2005, two years later. Um, one thing I was curious about, do you think it helped you being younger? Do you think you could resonate and identify and communicate better with people who were only two, three years your minor? At, at that point in time, yes. It's funny how old I felt I was. Like I felt like I was so much older. But yeah, like time looking is relative. <laughs> yeah. But looking back, it's like, no. I mean, yeah. we were only three pretty years close to the same age. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was, it was fun, that energy and, you know, just having the stamina of working till, you know, four, five in the morning, working game days, opening at, you know, 9am and being there until 14, 16. Yeah. yeah. It was like, I mean, I thrived on that stuff then, you know, now it's like. I can maybe do that type of shift once every quarter. Oh, I totally did. And I was flying, so I would wake up at 4 a.m. I would drive an hour from New Hampshire to Boston, report traffic uh, for two to three hours, land by 7.38, drive for my 10-hour shift to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where I would start at, I can't remember when it started, but it would be a 10-hour, I, I was working like 15, 16-hour days. Wow. And it's just, it's amazing how you just don't even bat an eye lash yeah. at that at the age of 24, 25. I, I think it's the sooner you get into this industry with the mentality of owning, the better your odds are. And it's really just a, a, a I think like that's that much more time you have to get established and make relationships, right? And you yeah. have, like you said, the stamina, the endurance to do it. And you, you need to be as lean as possible, you know? And if you can bear, if you can shoulder that weight and do as much as possible, like you and Manny were the only two employees, mm-hmm. try doing that in your, your, your mid to late thirties or even or your early forties. Yeah. It's possible, but you're going to feel it, man. <laughs> the bo- the yeah. body doesn't hold up quite yeah, as good. For sure. But I will say those, I mean, those shifts are some of the best memories, like the best memories oh, yeah. of, you know, the restaurant business or anything is when you really put in that time and put in that work. Like, 
we did a bunch of holiday meals recently here at the Jones. Um, we did, I think we sold like 270 Christmas meals and, um, feeding six people. So we've, we've had like 1800 people for the holidays and, um, you know, that was a labor of love, but it was also great working side by side and, and working those hours with my team members and then realizing, Oh, we're, we're helping these people and have making them have a great holiday experience because they didn't have to do that. Like yeah. that's rewarding. Those shifts are rewarding. I love that, man. Um, okay. Seven, four, seven. We didn't really get into any, mm-hmm. any, um, first of all, have we, have we identified any of the big hiccups, any of the things when you just look back and you shake your head at like, Oh my God, I wish I would have done that differently. The mistakes you made that we, I feel like we've, we've rung a yeah, lot. Yeah, I, I think most of them, I mean, each, we we learned the most at Texadelphia, and, and I think every restaurant since then, we, you know, we uh, we learned from them, but in terms of the big ones, I think we hit the, <laughs> we yeah. hit them. So 747 was this completely different concept, business model, like you were doing fast casual before, uh, now you're doing kind of like a, a bar full service. High volume bar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many curveballs got thrown at you during that process? <laughs> I mean, you know, dealing with uh, d- dealing with a drunk college clientele right. is not a pretty thing. <laughs> it's you know, it's entertaining. I, I mean, it would have made the best reality TV show in the world. Right. Cameras being around that oh place, raw. Some of the strangest things ever happened there, and it was so much fun. But it was also like. You know, this was our 15th year anniversary in September, and it's just like, how did we? How have we done this for 15 years? What were the what, what advice do you have for managing a drunk young crowd? Oh man, I mean, you know, knowing when to cut people off obviously yeah. is important. Um, Not letting it get there. Right? Yeah, and and you know, ultimately, everything we do is about hoping people have an experience and have great fun. So, I mean, we want people to have fun. It makes me happy when I see people enjoying themselves at our, at our restaurant. So, you know, just help, help them have fun. And, and when it gets to be too much fun, figure out the best way to diffuse the situation. So it took you five additional years. You went from one location to two locations mm-hmm. and then five additional years to go to your third location. was your, which was your first fuzzy taco. Why fuzzy taco? So we had, um, who are still our partners out of Fort Worth, they approached us. That's where the concept started and they wanted to expand it to the Oklahoma area and through friends of friends, um, we knew these people, they approached us and said, Hey, you know, we know you have some popular restaurants here in the Norman Oklahoma area. Um, are you interested in developing this? And so we were kind of like, Oh, we're not in the mood to open another restaurant right now. Um, and so we were just like, why don't we do a consulting gig? So I think we signed like a six month contract where we help them pick the spot, pick the location, manage the build out, hire the opening team and kind of like get things off the ground. And I think like two weeks before, uh, we opened, they were like, okay, well we can't do this without you guys. Uh, we need you to become partners. And so one thing led to another and we've, we've been partners in Fuzzy's Taco Shop and developed the whole state about to open our eighth location uh, and have been doing that for 10 years in that franchise. I mean, this is a unique, something that doesn't come up often that approach of 
a franchise or approaching you saying, we want you to open our franchise in your market. What things do we need to consider when doing that? So, you know, just seeing if it is a niche that your market needs. Like um, when we started doing fuzzies, there weren't a lot of taco shops. I mean, now there's probably 50 in in Oklahoma city. But when we started that, there weren't a lot. Um, we knew that we knew that service model inside and out fast casual. Um, cause at, you know, that point we had two Texadelphias open. We felt like we, we were really executing that fast casual model. Well, um, again, it was a franchise that was in kind of the infancy stage. So we knew we'd have flexibility, um, to make suggestions. And, um, Opportunity, too. yeah. It, you know, if you, if you see a, a, a strong franchise model um, that has legs, you know, and it's coming, yeah, it's going to get here eventually. You might as well be a part of that opportunity, right? Yes, and interesting that you say that because, and we don't have to talk about it now, but that has circled. But ten years later, that opportunity has presented itself again. So that's not with Spark, is it? <laughs> no, we've actually got a new. Um, we, we've got a new franchise that, that we're about to sign. Uh, okay. We can, we'll, yeah. We'll wait until current yeah. time. Um, so you've now in, in from 2010 to 2020 in 10 years, you've scaled to seven with an eighth on the way. Fuzzies. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, what lessons did you learn about? I mean, you've never done that many concepts of one or that many locations of one concept. What were the lessons you learned doing that? So, I feel like with fuzzies, that's when we really got our legs with marketing. Like people knew who we were, people trusted us. And I, we took some fast casual lessons we learned from Texadelphia, but then fuzzies didn't have a liquor license. So we had the liberty to kind of create a bar program. So we took experience we had from 747 and just kind of meshed those together and we're like, okay, this is a fun best of both worlds. Uh, concept we're able to do here. How do you have that kind of liberty to? Because you think franchise, you think rigidity. No, like these are the rules. Either you fit into the model or you don't. But it sounds like that's not the case. Here. <laughs> I think in the beginning it was a lot of the uh, uh, beg for forgiveness rather than oh, ask. So you just did it a little like, hey, bit. You know, right, let's little- go visit our friends up in Oklahoma <laughs> City and see like, what the hell are you guys. Doing? <laughs> I mean, it was funny because a lot of those things we did at that first Fuzzy's location, you know, became the color scheme or became the recipe, yeah. the margarita recipe for the, the whole franchise. Yeah. yeah, so it was great, and luckily they had trust in us and and. You know, we had flexibility. Hey, you guys chose us. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't, it, you know, it didn't hurt that we were the number one franchise in the system. So, yeah. uh, franchisee in the system. Yeah. So, uh, we, w- they, they allowed us to be kind of flexible. That's cool. Um, you said you learned, like, you took a lot of the Texadelphia ideas, models, fast casual. What were some, like, what are some of the key elements, the key, the, the keystone aspects of a tight, fast casual comp concept that you learned it's it's like a uh you know a teeter-totter you have to find that equilibrium of how fast you get people through the line versus how long they're going to have to wait for their food so it's kind of a balancing act of you know sometimes we we will like go on a ghost 
like pull somebody off of a register because we're getting through the line too quick and then the kitchen gets bogged down. So it's just kind of a constant making sure the flow's in that sweet spot of, okay, we the kitchen's doing fine. We can run two registers or we can run three registers. But, you know, there's only a, a finite amount of time people will wait in line to get their food or, you know, to order. And then the amount of time they'll wait to get their food. So we kind of try and balance that and have, you know, a really understandable amount of time that you have to wait in line. Like we get through that line pretty fast and then we get you your food pretty fast. What are those numbers? Is there a sweet spot? I don't think people like to wait in line any more than like five to seven minutes. Yeah. And then we try and get the food out in 10 or less. Okay. At our fast casual. And what about getting the food to them? How do you, what's the system for tracking? Um, so it depends on location. We used to do number, like calling people's numbers out. Uh, now we do pagers that that's probably the best. And then, you know, when we can, we try and run food out to the tables just so we have a little bit more guest interaction. No, are you using those geo tagging pagers that like, we aren't? Okay. We've never used those. I've seen them. We use like just the LRS like long range coaster. systems yeah. doing something where yeah. like, you could literally like you could look at a screen and it would Shows tell you. you what table they're sitting at because people lose. There's a lot of time lost and just looking around and you can pick up like that time compounds. If, if you waste 30 seconds every time trying to run to find somebody, maybe they're in the bathroom Yeah, and you know, you gross. They brought the pager into the bathroom. First of all, second of all, you're like, you don't <laughs> have to go try to find them. To find they're them. not at their table. It's crazy. I've yet to see that. I read about it, but I've yet to see that in action. Yeah. And so I think it, it works Maybe good we'll try it. big spaces, like big outdoor venues where yeah. like there's a crowd of people and there's no way you're going to know. Like if you have 50 plus people in a space, like how are you going to figure out who's who? Who's right? who? Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. Okay, cool. Um, any other key lessons with fast casual that just are lessons you learned the hard way? Um, I think that making sure that it's not just transactional because you get in this rhythm of like, okay, taking your order, swiping the card, moving on, handing the pager where it can become robotic. So we really try and make it less about the transaction and more about the experience. Okay. How do you break that, that um, habit from forming of being transactional? I mean, we just, hope and pray that we hire personalities. Like we hire, like I said, good people, people that don't only want to just get through the transaction, but want to make sure that person has a good experience or a good day. So we, you know, we pride ourselves on having really personable staff. Like we're not, um, we're going to go out of our way to make sure you have a good experience. Do you communicate to the expectation that we want you to be personable? Oh, 100%. Is there any like system or reminder or like way of bringing that top of mind? Manual wise, we always talk about the most important part of our uniform is our smile. You know, it's just like little cheesy things like that, you know. Um, But we're trying to remake, we're trying to make food memories for people. Like it's not just about, you know, eating your taco or or eating your hot chicken or whatever it may be here or any of our concepts. It's about creating that full experience, yeah. that full memory. There's a couple of things like when that come to my mind, things I've heard when you're handing somebody something, don't just slide it across the table, right? Like, or like the counter, but hold it with two hands and mm-hmm. make eye contact and literally pass it to them. Yeah. Like, like little things like that. What else comes to your mind? The things that you guys do to just little subconscious things to take the level higher of, of caring higher. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Like, 
Graham Colton, who is my business partner in the Jones Assembly, where we are now, we talk about these things, little touches. We always talk about these little touches and, you know, making sure we're paying attention to every detail. I mean, just like I know I keep referencing Nathan because he's right here setting up the bar. But I mean, I think Nathan probably has never presented a cocktail or poured in front of a guest without the label facing out. I mean, it's just a simple thing like that. Nathan, Uh, when I get my drink later, you better not mess that up. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's just knowing our story, knowing who we are, knowing about this place, knowing about the building. So it's more of an experience than just a transaction. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm I'm like really tearing into you, man. You're doing great. You're answering (laughs) some some interesting questions. So what does it make sense talking about? Um, What do you do best? What do you bring to the table that not a lot of people have? Me, myself, or... You, personally, and we can talk about the concepts, too. I think... I think I've always been driven um, and have kind of had this mentality of make it happen. Like, I don't like it when I have an idea and somebody says, no, we can't do that because of that. Like, I'll oftentimes just immediately sideline the no and just say, well, let's, let's make it happen or let's try and make it happen. And sometimes I have wild ideas that don't work, but sometimes I'll have ideas of like in fuzzy Stillwater, I wanted to do swings for bar stools on our outdoor bar. And people were like, no, our contractors like, that's a liability. That's a bad idea. Yada. And, and I just kept saying, we'll make it happen. Let's do it. Let's try it. It's on me if it doesn't work. And that's like, everybody's favorite thing about that location. And it's been eight years and <laughs> everybody's fine. Nobody's hurt. Nobody's cracking their head open on, on the, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that's not um, so that's cool. Um, I love that. Uh, we haven't even talked about the Jones assembly. We, we kind of alluded to it a couple times. Sure. Um, I just love how all of your concepts, some people usually find a groove. They, 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 they get into a niche, whether it's full service, fine dining. Um, but I feel like your concepts are kind of like, they just kind of like all like, you know what I mean? Like they're not the same. Like you, you, you get into markets, different markets, right? And you're mm-hmm. successful in all those markets, which is a testament. What is it about you guys that lets you have that much diversity from um, like a somewhat moderately upscale college bar to a uh, fast casual to a one of the most gorgeous venues I've ever seen, high touch fine dining, you know, like fine casual dining. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you do all those different things? Well, so Concert how venue. do we get in? <laughs> how do we get into them first or how do we do, how do we execute? Let's, let's talk about the entry first. Get okay. Into them, and then the execution. I feel like at any given moment, I'll have five to seven concepts in my head that I'm playing out that I, I visualize that I can see, But the number one thing is I'm just so passionate and drawn to the location, the physical space, the real estate. There's just oftentimes like a gut feeling like when I walk into a space, I can immediately think it could be this. And yes, that might change a hundred times, but when I walked into this space, it, it was like automatic. Same thing. Uh, 747 when I saw that building saw it was for sale created the concept around that architecture around that real estate and um, there I've never had that strong of a feeling as I've had here 
at the Jones Assembly. Vision. Vision, yeah. Yeah. So how did this opportunity, first of all, kind of paint, I, I took some footage when I was here at Charter the other day and I, I posted it to social media. Yeah. Paint the for the listeners who didn't catch them. If you're not paying attention to my Instagram story, <laughs> um, paint the picture of what the Jones Assembly is. Sure. So um, these two buildings were part of the Model T Fred Jones Model T Assembly kind of um, area. The main manufacturing happened in the building, which is now the 21C uh, Hotel, just in the north of us. And these were two warehouse buildings. So. Um, it's just really cool that history of, you know, the, the assembly line, the Model T, kind of that um, industrial revolution of America. And uh, so a lot of history in these two buildings. And then um, we were able to kind of, I guess, pay homage to what happened here in a lot of ways. Like, it's not in a cheesy way, but, you know, we're sitting in the tea room, yeah. which is a reference to the Model T. Yeah. Um, you know, we reclaimed a lot of the materials that we use, like our, in the entire furniture in the first level, the bar skirt, that's all recycled wood from the second floor that we removed, which, which we're on now. Um, and we just tried to, you know, do things that like made it feel new, but also you could feel like you just felt the heart and soul of this building when you walked in. Yeah. And really this, you know, I saw this and I had three ideas. I had a cocktail bar that I wanted to do in my mind. Graham, my business partner and I for, since we were in college together at SMU had talked about how we wanted a live music venue in in Oklahoma city. We didn't have a lot of these places to go see live music. When we lived in Dallas, it was, it was the thread of our social life was going to see live music. Um, and then, uh, you know, just opening opening a restaurant on this side of downtown. So we kind of infused those three uh, food, spirits, and music all into one because we weren't sure if a music venue on its own would work by itself. We weren't sure if a cocktail bar by itself would work on its own. So we kind of just fused them all together and, and said, okay, let's go as big as we can possibly go, do something we've never seen anywhere, build an indoor-outdoor stage, have the furniture fit under the stage, do full scale concerts. Yeah. How did you like, know to, to use the, just to get them the most out of that space? How did you have the foresight to know that we're going to need to transform this space for whatever given event, whatever given need fate like presents itself. We have crazy ideas of what we want. And then we have this ingenious architect named James Boswell out of Tulsa who um, has done amazing restaurants throughout Tulsa and Oklahoma city. But he is one of those guys, like when I say make it happen, he's not a no, he's not an architect that is so analytical or so rigid that he is, he is the guy that makes it happen. Mm. Like when we were like, we want an indoor outdoor stage and we just want that to magically. Which is on the patio on the other side. Yeah. So it's hard to tell like right now because of the weather, but basically that that is a patio. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But basically, the stage is in three parts. Okay. And the um, the main stage connects to the outdoor patio. Yeah. So that patio is the third part of that stage. And we have a nano wall that goes all the way back to the, basically to the back of the stage. Yeah. So we can open up that entire stage. So it's one continuous. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking, as I'm hearing you say this first, I got to let the listeners know that if you 
we're talking about a lot of visuals right now. Yeah. <laughs> we are recording this. I did walk around with the camera a couple nights ago and I and I, I took in the entire space. So as we're talking about this, you're gonna be able to see everything we're talking about. Um so I highly encourage you to hit pause right now if you want to. Uh, go subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, do a search for uh, Restaurant Unstoppable episode 773. Wow, that's awesome. 774, Brian Bogart, and it's B-O-G-E-R-T. Um, if you want to see what we're talking about, if you really want to get that visual. And subscribe while you're over there, for God's sakes, please and thank you. Um, <laughs> so I, well, as you're talking, I'm just thinking to yourself, I think people try to do what you accomplished here so early on and they don't realize what type of an army it takes to accomplish something like this, what type of reputation it takes. So in 2016, when you were executing this, how much do you think your reputation, your presence within Oklahoma city as a restaurant tour served you in building the team you would need to execute this? So I think that is what was so spectacular about this place is we kept tapping into all of our talents. Like we grabbed Cole who is king of like back of house operations at our fuzzy system. And I was like, Hey Cole, I need your help. I need you to get this kitchen organized. Like we have some talented chefs, but we need organization. We need kitchen management. So he came in Courtney, who is our president and who is a catch all for everything. Like literally she could do anything at any of our restaurants. Um, you know, she came in and, started basically running our agenda meetings and helped with marketing. Annie Tucker, who's our marketing coordinator, came and, you know, everybody just took on whatever job they needed to to get us opened. And we pulled from all different concepts. I mean, we'd have Michael Weba, our Fuzzies uh, Edmund operating partner, he'd come work expo three nights a week. Like, we just all pulled together because this was such an important opening for Oklahoma city. Like it was just too big to fail. Like we did, we were like, this is too important for the city. This is too important for our restaurant group. We've all got to do whatever it takes to make sure it, it works. And I think another thing that I meant to bring light to was the, just the, you started talking about the, um, homage to the history of the building. And I think that's so smart when you're building a restaurant, how can you make it resonate? How can you make the community proud of it? And, because you know you tie the history of the space into it, and, and you, you tip the hat to the, the Jones Assembly. It was the, the the Jones family, right, that assembled the Model T. I think it's just yes. so smart, and the it, it's it has soul. You know, it has character, and people can relate to it. Um, so just kind of you you mentioned your your strength, your team, the the ability with marketing. I mean, what what advice do you have around marketing? I know it's a really broad question, but take us there. So I think one thing we do really well is prepare for an opening. We have like a pretty good following in terms of like our Instagram accounts and social media accounts. But we, whenever we go into like a part of the city, we really tap into, okay, who are our neighbors? What businesses are around here? And I mean, in this instance, we probably did 12 soft openings with different groups of people before we opened. Because I mean, we did a tea room happy hour soft opening. We did like a little bit of a music soft opening. We did a lunch soft opening. Like we did all of these different things to see what worked and what didn't. And it gave so many people a taste of, you know, so many people a taste of what was to come in 
a setting that we weren't necessarily being judged fully. It was like, hey, thank you for helping us train. Thank you for helping us get ready. And that's one thing we always invest in is we make sure we're ready to open before we open, before we actually open the doors to the general public. And it, it takes a lot of inventory. It takes a lot of working capital, but it is something that always has to be in our budget before we open because we only get one chance to open to the public and we want people to walk in and feel like we've been open for months the first time we open the doors to the public. So what is that approach? Is it like a, is it a soft, how many do you do a bunch of soft openings? I think we did 12 soft openings here at the Jones. Yeah. Do you announce when you're going to be opening or do you kind of just open under the radar? We made the mistake of saying an opening date early on and in like, the life of of the social order, and I think we've just learned now, like not to set a date because yeah, I, I kind of agree. We with always that push approach. it back, yeah, because for things always happen, especially with a build out like this. There's mm-hmm. a bajillion different things that you just cannot foresee postponing the actual opening date. And like you said, you get one shot. You get one shot to bring something to bring somebody back a second time. And I think I can't remember the numbers, but if somebody comes back a third time they're like 70% more likely to be a regular guest or something like that. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah. So like if you can come, if, if you can get them to come back a second time, they're like 30% more likely to be a regular. But if you can come, come back a third time, now you're starting to develop a habit. Now you're starting to develop relationships and they're 70% more likely to come back. But if you lose them on that first experience, game over. You know, like yeah. it will be really hard to convince them to come back. Somebody's going to have to pull them back in, mm-hmm. but if they're going to do it on their own free will. You got to make a great experience. You can't lose them. Absolutely. I love that. Um, anything we have not discussed up to this point that, that you're chomping at the bit there, you're hoping we would, we would discuss. Hmm. I have a couple more questions I'm curious about, but yeah, I, I mean, feel free to fire away. I, I, I feel like we, you know, we have some things, that are coming on the pipeline that, that I'm sure you're going to ask about. But yeah, right right now, I feel like we're just having a good convo. I was really surprised to see that you sold your Texadelphia locations. That was your, your baby. That, that's what it got was. you in. I know. And I'm, I was surprised to see that that you know, it wasn't for you anymore. What, it, what happened? It was, it was bittersweet. Um, like, like I said, I feel like that's where we learned everything. Like yeah. That's where we started. That's like the core of our restaurant group. Um, a new group bought the Texadelphia franchise. Joel, uh, unfortunately, the original creator passed away. A new group came in um, and uh, is interested in developing more locations. It was not something at this time we were able to do um, just because of what we have going on the pipeline. And we just started talking pre-pandemic. They were interested in potentially purchasing it and, and made an offer And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do now? And to their credit, um, I think April, they came back and said, hey, you know, the offer's still on the table. Are you interested? It was an opportunity for Manny's brother, Christian. They wanted to keep him on to be an operating partner and help them open more locations. So uh, it was just a timing thing. It it, um, worked out and we just really wanted to make sure that the brand stayed in Oklahoma city and it was best case scenario for both of us. So it kind of, I want to make sure I heard that you, you sold your, uh, 
Texadelphia. I don't know why I'm Texadelphia. I'm dyslexic, <laughs> yeah. so I'm like <laughs> no. always confusing which word comes first. Um, you saw that. So, so it's in the family. Manny's brother. Yeah, has yeah, it. absolutely. So you kind of kind of retains it. Exactly. It like, feels yeah, like it, it's still. It part goes of it. back to creating opportunity for others, man. Yeah. And I cannot stress that's what it's all about. It's, yep. it's about. It's not about what you can do for yourself. It's about what you can do for others, which ironically always comes back to serve you some way somehow. And usually, it's with other opportunities. Because people go to opportunity creators, you know, yeah. this is what happens. Um, and then the only other thing we haven't really talked about, you, you do. I mean, I want to know what your plan for the future is, what your what your thoughts on COVID nineteen are. Um, I think it's kind of also time we start talking. And there's a, and I don't want to. Let me. What are your thoughts on COVID nineteen? The state of the industry. What's happening? What are your thoughts? I think it's shown. Um, our industry restaurant worker resilience. I mean, the amount of times we've had to pivot, uh, you know, daily, weekly, you know, closing restrictions, putting up plexiglass, moving tables, reducing capacity, changing hours, moving to, you know, take out curbside online models. Like just the amount of times we've had to be nimble and pivot in these last seven, eight months is crazy. So I think it shows our group at least like, you know, we're prepared for battle. Like if if something like horrible like this happens to us again, we're going to figure out a way to be nimble and, and, and make it work. And, and, you know, I just feel horrible for, for other cities where they're not able to be open. Um, we live in a city that, that we have been able to be open to some extent. You guys are 50% Uh, right now. Um, so at this point, uh, our hours are reduced, but the other, our tables just have to be socially distanced and or plexi in between each booth or bar stool. Um, so that's what we're, we're doing right now. And then at most of our, uh, I mean, I would say the most we ever allow this place to get to is probably 30 to 35% full. Okay. Um, I mean, this is a gigantic a space. I, I mean, we're talking about 30,000 plus square feet in this, you know, yeah, I would say probably more. Than yeah. That. yeah. I mean, we, we, my apartment's 800 square feet and I feel yeah. like I could just fit at least 10 <laughs> of these things in here. Um, well, we've got 225 seat dining room, but then when we clear out the furniture for like a large scale concert, we yeah. sell seventeen hundred tickets. You got the balcony behind you over yeah. there too. I mean, this is a really beautiful space. But um, at, at like fast casual, our fast casual concepts, we've had to clear out a lot of the tables just to make room for the DoorDash curbside um, to go order. Now, so, were you doing that before COVID nineteen? So we were doing. We were not doing curbside. Um, we had an app, but it wasn't as user friendly as it is now. Um, and we didn't have the partnership with DoorDash. So, uh, we didn't really offer delivery. Has that served you? Do you think it has? I mean, the fees are, are pretty tough, uh, to stomach, but, um, it certainly kept us going when we needed it. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, what about this? So now that you've shared what you had to say, and I haven't really been too vocal about how I feel. I mean, I'm not going to share all of what I feel because I really try to keep a, I'm biased. Um, my, my job is to learn, to absorb, not make points. But I, I just want to, I do want to say this. I think it's really crazy how the restaurant industry has been taking a, the brunt of the load. You look mm-hmm. at, you look at retail and let's be honest, places that are not essential. Like, 
is Target essential? Like, do we need to go to Target? Like, I mean, there's maybe, I mean, especially with online ordering right now, like you could just as much make the argument that like we could just have something delivered or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, but when you look at how hard the restaurant industry has had it and how just like this almost an unfair, unbalanced amount of regulation being put on them and how good we've been at complying is a testament to the people of this industry to, to do what to just, we're so hospitable. We just want to make everybody happy. We want, we do what we're told. Like we, we play nice. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. And it's amazing to be able to see just how good we've been and how much we just put the safety of our guests ahead of our own needs. Cause we're dying out here. Like literally yeah. like, well, <laughs> yes, literally <laughs> yeah. that, Maybe I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> I didn't yeah. mean it like that. But you know, but the restaurants are literally closing, like left and right, like mm-hmm. losing their lives' work. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's just it's, it's it's crazy to me that like we still kind of just go along with it. And I'm I, I am curious sometimes, like where where's the line? When do we start pushing back? And yeah, start saying enough is enough. Luckily, like, groups like Independent Restaurant Coalition are doing a great job. That National Restaurant Association is doing a really good job with messaging, trying to debunk, you know, restaurants taking the fall and being the scapegoat for a lot of the community spread, which there's not a ton of data to back that up. And, you know, ultimately restaurants are being asked to to carry a lot of the responsibility and brunt when oftentimes the citizens aren't. And, you know, to me, this all comes down to social responsibility. Can I, can I be responsible enough to wear a mask, care for somebody else, keep my distance and follow the rules that yeah. are set forth? Like, I, I, you know, we're, we're not trying to be these stringent rule makers. We're just enforcing the rules that are hopefully going to get us all yeah. through it. And for the record, I'm not an anti-masker. Oh, no, you know no, I mean? no. I, no. I, I, see I what believe, I did yeah. to make you feel like every, every interview Absolutely. I replace the mic cover. I disinfect the mics. I, I disinfect the headset. I do whatever I can. I'm trying to do my part. But at the same time, life has to go on. And like, I just feel like it's just getting to this point where it's like we need to find a balance. We started this conversation sure? talking about balance, right? Yes. And I think that we, we need to find a balance. And I think there's a – we're at this point, and I'm thinking about starting this hashtag, hashtag open anyway, because really what can the government do if every restaurant at the same time says, guess what? We're going to open. We'll stay at 50% capacity, but screw you. I have to feed my family. I have my whole life invested in this. And – we can't be responsible for everything, you know, like at some point, like you said, social responsibility, people need to be responsible for themselves. If they aren't in a safe place to be going out, if they're compromised, then they need to stay home. You know what I'm saying? And that doesn't fall on us. And I don't think I'm out of line saying that. No, I don't think so either. And and if, if not, there's no Help accountability. Give the financial support yeah, that, that yeah, the 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 money should be going to help those people that need it the most. People who are at the most the most compromised, the most at risk. We should be not just the government. We as communities need to be banding together to help these people out. We need to identify. Maybe it goes against some kind of I don't know, like like confidentiality or something or whatever. But I feel like we just need to stop looking for somebody to solve the problem and just do it, you know, yeah. solve the problem, come together, figure it out. Yeah. Some um, sort of organized people are just pointing fingers, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, or putting their hands out, asking for help, like a give, 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 give. What can we do? What can we do? You know, and you don't hear those conversations. Yeah, exactly. Um, sorry. I was a little bit. Of a no, problem. no, it's, 
uh, just, I've been really quiet about it for a while because I'm afraid of what you know. But anyway, exactly. Um, it, it, at the end of the day, if if people want their restaurants, their community restaurants, their independent restaurants, their favorite restaurants to survive, like everybody's got to do their dude, part. We're the second largest industry in the nation, the restaurant industry, the food and beverage hospitality industry. If we just say no. We're going to open anyway. <laughs> Who's going to stop us? We are unstoppable if we band, if we band together. And, and hashtag open anyway. If you, if you agree, share this episode and tag it. Hashtag open anyway. Oh, man. We wanted to just start. Um, anything we haven't touched on before we start to wrap up? I think we said you mentioned something earlier. Where it was like a maybe we would save that for later. Did that ever we, come out? I don't think so. But I think what we're referring to is... I believe we found another opportunity that is going to be coming up soon. That's right. Um, we've been talking to a group out of Los Angeles um, that is expanding. And so I think our next uh, franchise is coming up soon. We're about to sign the deal in Dog a house. week. So hopefully by the by the time yes. this comes out, you can, you can announce it. We haven't signed the dotted line yet, but it's an awesome concept that we're super excited about. Um, and we're, we're excited to get in kind of that stage that we like LA. to get in. Who's expanding out of LA. It's about to, about to blow. Did I, you can tell me after. I'll tell you after. I'll tell you after. <laughs> I love this conversation. Uh, we wrap up every part of the free flowing conversation with the question of, uh, I remind people of the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. We do that by sharing the stories and making an example of people like you, giving the industry an aiming point. So how have you transformed? Who are you today versus the man you were in 2003 when you got into this? I think it's... Obviously, we've grown. There's a lot more of us. Um, I think, you know, from those first days in 2003 of just survival and, you know, how am I going to pay my personal bills? It's it's become a how do we help all of our team members make a living? How do we take care of our crew, our staff? How in the middle of a pandemic do we communicate? Do we help? Do we do what we know best to take care of them. So I, I feel like it has grown from being singular to being like, you know, this big group that we want to take care of each other. And that's, you know, bottom line, why I get up and do what I do is because we want to take care of our team members and we want to take care of our guests. I love that. Great conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back for a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure your profitability and restaurant success. Trusted by over 400 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you already use and trust like toast, turning labor into a competitive advantage for you and your business to get three months absolutely free. Head over to www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Get on it. 
Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? Everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sinking Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sinking surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 in 15 seconds, and norovirus, the flu, and common cold viruses in 30 seconds, helping you reduce risk, simplify your procedures, and help protect your team, your guest, and your reputation with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Make it happen. What is your biggest weakness? Saying no. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're building a team? What are you looking for? The intangibles. What are the intangibles? Personality. Good, good person. Can you feel they're a good person? Mm. What is your biggest challenge today? Just being nimble in the pandemic. And how are you overcoming that challenge? B- being able to pivot quickly. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. A way to be, a way to act. A core we, value. We, we've got this saying of keep your head on a swivel. What does that mean? It just means always be aware, like kind of have your head Head turning in every, yeah. And does a guest need something? Is there a piece of trash on the floor? Does something need attention? Proactive, not reactive. Yep. I love that. Uh, What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond. I think it's probably the same answer, the the head on a swivel. Yeah, absolutely. What's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or business owner? I just read the best book. It's called uh, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by Kate Murphy. You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and What Matters? Is that what it is? Uh, so the title's You're Not Listening, and then kind of the subtext is... Uh, what you're missing and why it matters. Okay. And what was the biggest lesson from that book? There's just a whole idea of active listening and coming, syncing up your brainwaves with others while you're having a conversation and the magic that happens when you do that. Dude, there's this term for that. It's like, I can't remember. I heard it somewhere else. I saw it in a book. It was mentioned. Oh, what's it called? It's like, I can't remember. It's killing me. But it's just the idea of just shutting down everything and just empathetic, like empathetic listening, or just like empty, li- where you shut everything down inside and you just listen. And it, it's hard to do, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm constantly learning how to do that as a well. Podcast. You're you're pretty good. At Thank it. you very much. But it's, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Um, did you listen to that book or did you read that book? I read it. Okay. Do you listen to audiobooks? I do. When I'm when I'm driving like on a road trip. Yeah game changer in my opinion uh and if you guys 
are not Audible listeners, if you do, if you do not have an Audible account, it, I'm telling you it will change your life. Head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable and get your first book on us. And it changed my life. I was, I'm dyslexic. I mentioned it like a few times during this interview yeah. and literally like once I discovered audiobooks, it just like, it, like the, the roof came off, you know, it was like unlimited learning and That's we're busy in this industry. We don't have that energy to sit down after a 12 hour shift to consume a book. But when you're, you can listen, you can have it playing in the kitchen during prep and you can bring your, the cool thing is you can also bring your team in on the lessons. Like make your team listen to the books you're listening, start a dialogue. Maybe they have ideas. Maybe they hear something like we should apply that in this way that you would have never even, you know, make it a group thing. You know, yeah, you can do that with audio. Cool. Yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I like it. Um, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? After reading that book, listening. Yeah, for sure. Uh, name one service you've hired or outsourced to. So this is my attempt to help good people connect with good people. So something that you know you can't do as well in house if you were to outsource it to somebody else. Restaurant hospitality associates, who I mentioned, Accounting. they are great bookkeepers for restaurants. And then we outsource a lot of our, um, we outsource basically our payroll, credit card processing, and some HR onboarding activities to Heartland Payment Solutions. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, So the next question is around technology. Maybe you might have answered it with that last little bit. What's one piece of technology you've adopted within your restaurant that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, uh, profitability, anything along those lines? So we actually adopted two last year, two new pieces of technology. One, we developed an app um, for our team members and it basically is like serves as your employee ID. Okay. Um, but what I love about it is we can push notifications so we can send our newsletter through the app or push like, Hey, um, it's game day in Norman Fuzzy's Norman and 747 need extra bar help. Does anybody want to pick up shifts? Was this a custom app that you had developed? Custom or? app. We, so we you developed. can't go buy this app for yourself? No, it's right? called, I mean, you could download it and look at it. It's just called uh, SO, So You Know. And it's okay. just like trying to keep everybody up to date and informed. Beautiful. And then we use uh, a software called Asana. Oh, okay. Um, which is kind of task management. Yep. And we use that um, for new project spark that we're working on and then we use that within management teams because it's just a good way of getting reminders and you can't really run from it which yeah. is great because like did you do that i know you got the email and i <laughs> yeah. know you got- yeah so accountability yeah yeah i love it um this is the last question i get a lot of eye rolls it's a doozy get ready for <laughs> it if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy what would they be for the good of humankind and the good. I mean, it's a tough take one. care of each other. One. Travel. Two. Listen. Three. This has been a great conversation, Brian. Thank you so much. I wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Who's one person you respect and admire? And by the way, 
Chad from across the street calls you out. So <laughs> there you go. He, awesome. He's a huge admirer of yours. Oh, great guy. Um, who do you respect and admire and think would make a great guest mentor? Like you made for us today. If you knew this person was being interview, interviewed, you, you would listen to that episode. So somebody that I bounce so many different questions off of, and it's just great to have like a comrade yeah. in this industry, is Keith Ball. Mm. Um, he and his wife, Heather, own a Good Egg group. They have so many cool, creative, awesome concepts in Oklahoma City. And I feel like they were the first kind of big group to be really innovative and creative and bring like interior beauty to spaces and kind of do fun, funky food. They're Keith, aw- awesome. Keith Paul, look up. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on <laughs> the show. Go get him. And uh, what if we were listening to this and we really resonated with what you had to say and maybe we want to come join your team? What's the best way to connect? So, um, also I want to give out to a shout oh, out more. if I can. Sorry. Please. No, no. As many I mean, as you have. This the is person my who guests. also rec- recommended your podcast, which is amazing, and I got to hear it for the first time, is Charlie Alvarado, who you've met with, who uh, is on our team. He is so passionate about food and hospitality. Like, I hope one day he has this conversation because he's just, he's the man. Um, we talked about it. He yeah. said he wanted more time. He more said he time. wanted more time, he's, but he's on he, my radar. He's, he's humble in that sense. Have him yeah. take you on the okay. taco tour of, of uh, Oklahoma City. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. Charlie, oh man, you've uh, officially been called yes, out, brother. I'll call, I'll Maybe call we can Charlie. sit you down before I get out of town. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I completely blanked on the last mm-hmm. question. The last question is, if somebody wanted to come join your team or maybe they wanted to connect with you for whatever reason, what's the best way to connect? So best way to reach out to me individually, uh, out of the social media platforms, I use Instagram by far the most. It's just at team bogey, T-E-A-M-B-O-G-I-E. And then Twitter, Facebook, I think it's just Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Bogert, B-O-G-E-R-T. Um, Boger. Boger, not, <laughs> not Boger. But one thing I want to say to people out there listening, Oklahoma City is like a burgeoning food and beverage scene. Like Oklahoma pe- in general. Yeah, like. and it, you wouldn't know it. I mean, it's the 25th biggest city in the United States, and we have an awesome scene here. It's great, low cost of living, great quality of life, and we have a lot of opportunity. So if you're out there in a city and you're looking for your next gig, like yeah. contact wow. me. We, we, we just hire our executive chef here is moved from LA in April of the pandemic and is, is killing it. Yeah. So I, I think you, I know this is the end of the interview, <laughs> but like you allude to something that's really important. I think it's a prediction I've made that I think in the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to see the, the small to medium sized cities explode. Um, because people, there's just so much more opportunity. We're not, the opportunity isn't in the big cities anymore. The opportunity is in the small emerging cities and bigger corporations are moving to these cities for lower costs. And there's, if you want to make a name for yourself, go to a city that's on the come up. Um, it was Austin, you know, 10 years ago. It was like Tulsa, like 10 years ago. I Mm -hmm. feel like, like there's another example of a city that kind of exploded. Go to find these cities. I would say Lewiston, Maine is another one. You've probably never even heard of the second largest city in Maine that these cities have bones and they're empty and there's just vacancy and opportunity and you can work from anywhere in the world now and you're going to see people taking their paycheck and going to cheaper places to spread it, to get, to get more out of their paycheck. I think that's the future. And I think there's a, the, 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 we haven't even begun to see the explosion of food 
opportunity in this, these small mid major cities. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. Um, just we'll, co- to- we'll, we'll contact us. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring yeah. you on the team for sure. <laughs> um, this has been a lot of fun, Brian. Thank you awesome. so much. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Brian Bogert, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Uh, so many great takeaways from today's chat. And I really pushed you, man. Uh, you did a great job fielding my questions. I really appreciate you. So, I mean, the big takeaways for me in today's chat, I think just going for it. And I, I love what they've been able to scale their social order dining um, collective into. But just keep in mind that they started from a franchise, a single franchise unit and they learned they didn't have any experience uh they they used that opportunity as a crash course to learn all things about restaurant operations and uh they they were there every day you know and i think that like people look at these successful operators and they try to get there overnight and they don't realize that these people started really small and they grew consistently gradually over time and then start surrounding themselves with amazing people and creating opportunity for these amazing people and you let cash flow and people determine your your growth and i see it all the time that people get ahead of their skis because they they think that you know it's about external growth no it's internal growth growing internally slowly consistently and you will get there over time just keep showing up um i loved it great stuff today uh and guys like always i gotta remind you about what we got going on in the network so whenever we have a guest on the show i invite them to come hang out uh in the network to reflect on their episode and brian boger uh, agreed to do that so if you found value in today's conversation and you want to come hang out with me and a bunch of other restaurateurs uh to reflect on today's episode with Brian, our guest, uh, then go to the show notes. This is episode 775. Uh, select the under the call to action in the show notes, Restaurant Unstoppable Network, and come ask your questions and hang out. And we're doing this every week. We're also uh, hosting Tech Talks, where the, the tools and services that are recommended, the technologies that are recommended on the show, uh, we're going to start collaborating with the actual companies in sharing best practices and restaurant tours who are using this technology can support each other uh that's what we got going on in the network uh i'm live two hours a week every week every tuesday and thursday in the network just to answer your questions and uh we have these deep dive workshops and soon to be courses i'm telling you it's going to be great come hang out in the network all right guys that's it for today until next time peace out